Hi, everyone. Get ready for the How I Raised It podcast, the show where you get an inside, unfiltered look at how real entrepreneurs raised capital for their businesses. We'll listen to the stories, the successes, and the challenges they had to overcome to get to where they are now. I'm your host, Nathan Beckert, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode with Joel Holland of Harvest Hosts, a very cool startup that lets RV owners camp at wineries, golf courses, museums, etc., if you like this kind of content, please leave us a review in the Apple iTunes store, hit all the stars, leave us a nice review, and then email us at info at foundersuite.com, and I'll send you a list of 2,500 investors who don't require a warm intro. This is a really nice list. So please hit that review button, hit all the stars, email us at info at foundersuite.com. Thank you very much for tuning in and enjoy the chat with Joel. Welcome to How I Raised It. The podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have Joel Holland of Harvest Hosts coming to us from beautiful Vail, Colorado. How's your day going? It's going well, Nathan. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. Nice springtime in Marin. I'm sure the mountains are beautiful this time of year. What's uh, what's keeping you active in Vail right now? Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, before this, I was actually researching flights to San Francisco uh, to try to get up to Napa. We, um, we're in this shoulder season now where it's the only time of year I don't want to be in Vail. Ski slopes closed, everything's muddy. It's snowing right now, but there's nothing to do with it. Um, I just want some sunshine and wine. So I'm hoping we can get out to, hope we get out to Napa either next weekend or the weekend after. Sunshine and wine. Yes. Um, how did you end up at Vail? Just because of skis, uh, skiing or what? Yeah. Yeah. A little, well, that was certainly a factor. So my, um, my wife and I were, were living in Washington, the Washington DC area. That's where I built my last company, uh, Storyblocks, which is a stock video production music you know, graphics um, mm. company and sold that company. And we basically were at this inflection point. We had no kids, we had no real responsibilities and decided, hey, if we're gonna be spontaneous and try something new, why not uh, do it now? And, and so we kind of impulsively purchased an RV, um, started traveling, ended up traveling through all the lower 48 states and found ourselves in Colorado. And like, you know, we, we were looking for, kind of looking for that motive, you know, kind of that inspiration to, to live somewhere new. We both love the mountains. And um, I, I definitely love skiing more than she does, but um, you learn that a place like Vail has more to offer than just skiing in the summer. It's amazing, the hiking, the camping. Uh, we fell in love. And so it's been five years. And I think, you know, we've put down roots and are probably not, uh, not ever returning to the normal city life again. And it's amazing time, right? We can kind of build startups anywhere, I think. And, uh, you know, the fact that you can have a well-funded, successful startup <laughs> from Vail and live the lifestyle is pretty amazing. So good for it's, you. It's actually, it's actually one of my biggest points of pride um, with Harvest Hosts was proving that you can do just what you said. Build, if, build a company from wherever you want to. And, and my argument to other friends was, I think you'll actually end up building a better company if you're in a mental place where you're happier. Mm. And it's true. I, I could not have built Harvest Host into, into what it is if I was still living in DC. I'm convinced of it. Just personally, like personally being out here with this clear head 
Uh, it's just, every, it's, it, you always feel good. There's, when I say there's no stress, there's literally no stress. Um, it just translates into, into good company building, I think. Hmm. That's great. Well, so you hinted at it, but uh, we haven't really given the audience uh, what you do. So what is Harvest Host? Yep. So Harvest Host is a membership club for RVers. And um, we now have closing in on 180,000 members who um, pay an annual fee around $100 a year and then get unlimited access to staying at really unique kind of upscale locations like wineries, breweries, distilleries, golf courses, museums, um, and other really great small business attractions all over North America. Um, and you've seen, you know, in the news, RVing, of course, has become a really popular topic these days um, because it's a safe way to travel. It's a really cool way to travel. Um, so we were, of course, doing this pre-COVID, but, but since COVID, the tailwinds have only gotten stronger. Um, but what Harvest Host tries to do is connect this world of RVers and by the way, there are 14 million RV owners here in oh. North America. There's quite a lot. Um, we can like to connect them with small businesses where they can, you know, support the business, have a, you know, a really wonderful time staying in a winery, you know, sipping the goods and not having to drive anywhere. Um, and it's a blast. So, so it's a really, it's been a really fun company to build. What a neat, yeah, it's really cool. So if let's just take a real simple scenario of, um, if it's a small winery and I'm in my RV, I book it in advance. I pull into a field and I have to be self-contained, right? I'm not hooking up to their electrical or anything like that. Correct? Or am I wrong? You're spot on. Yep. Spot on. It's um, boondocking is kind of what they call, you call the term with no hookups. Uh, but RVs are built for, for boondocking and being off the grid for multiple days. I mean, they're really, mo most of them built for being off the grid for like a week. Um, with Harvest Host, you're only staying one, usually 24 hours. And so, yep, you pull onto a winery or, or right now, um, lavender fields are very popular. So we have a couple of lavender farms. So you like pull into the middle of a lavender field, surrounded by beauty, peaceful, birds chirping, no, you know, no noise. Um, and that's your night. I mean, that's where you're spending the night. You're, you're in it. Will there be other RVs there? Or is it usually like, this is my spot for the night? You know, I've done it a lot. Uh, most of the time, I'm the only one. Uh, but we do have a cap, you know, of not too many. So, so on, uh, typically our hosts can hold one to four RVs. Okay. Um, so even a place that has four, you'd never be right beside each other. Typically it's like, you know, a thousand acre property so they can spread around. So you've really got the peace and serenity. Um, and a lot different than, of course, a campground where you have hundreds of rigs that are all five feet apart. Got it. Totally random question, but it's stuck in my head. I'm just going to ask it. So if I'm you know, driving around the country, staying in all these awesome lavender fields, and I'm sure there's a thousand other cool spots. Every few days, I've got to check into a regular type of campground for refilling my water tanks, black water, gray water disposal, all that stuff, right? Is that kind of the pattern your users are doing or what? It is exactly right. It is exactly right. Um, yep. You basically you'll go find Harvest Host, you know, stay there, maybe one or two of them, and then go to a campground, hook up, you know, get all, get your power, your water, your sewer, uh, maybe a little television and then, and then continue. So that, that is exactly the pattern. Um, and yeah, we now have, we, we have over 2000 locations and wow. we're adding right now um, over 200 a month. So our goal is to have over 3000, you know, by the end of this year, I, I think we'll be far beyond that, but, but there are tens of thousands of really cool small businesses all over the country that can support um, an RVer 
and and could really benefit from from having another customer too. Yeah, it's cool. What with two thousand, this is going to be a hard question, but like, what are some of your favorite examples, or even what is a, a good example of different types? Right, the lavender fields is yep. one, wineries another. What are some of the other cool types of of places? Yeah, so breweries and distilleries have become a much more. It, it's a growing segment. It's probably growing faster than the other segments. Uh, that just represents people's interests right now. Uh, microbreweries are becoming very popular, and so we're onboarding those quickly. Um, golf courses, of course, uh, are very scenic and they have space. And mm. so we have over 400 golf courses we work with. Um, and then we have this category we call kind of uh, museums and attractions. Those are some of the ones that are very memorable because they're just, they're so unique. So we have like outdoor air museums with, you know, old, you know, airplanes. We have um, the Tallahassee Auto Museum where you can go see the coolest like cars from all the years. Um, some of my favorites that I've personally visited, Mount Washington Cog Railway in New Hampshire. Mm, mm-hmm. And you can actually park right there uh, at the base and watch this um, coal-powered train built in the 1800s tr- climb Mount Washington. It's crazy. Think of things on a 45-degree angle at a certain point. A modern marvel back then, no doubt. Um, and then we have things like Kansas, the Underground Salt Museum, where you actually take an elevator 600 feet into the ground mm, cool. and, and see them actively creating salt, which... I never knew where my table salt came from. So it's kind of cool <laughs> to say, ah, there it is. <laughs> uh-huh. Cool. Interesting stuff. Tell, tell me the pricing again. It's it's a, a monthly subscription and then it's an additional charge per per stop or no? No. So that's what's kind of unique about it. Uh, it's an annual subscription. Annual subscription. Nine, yep. $99 a year. Um, gets you unlimited access to uh, all of our locations, except for golf. If you want to add golf courses, it's like another 20 bucks. Um there are no additional camping fees. And so when you go to visit these businesses, you pay nothing to, to stay there. Um, you are encouraged, uh, though not required, to support the businesses you visit. And so, you know, if you go to a winery, buy a couple bottles, do the tasting. If you go to the um, Underground Salt Museum, you know, you'll buy a ticket for like $12, take a tour. Uh, so y- you end up supporting the businesses, but coming away with products, goods, and experiences. Um, we tell our members, you know, take a percentage of what you would have spent to the campground, which is like at we probably about 50 bucks a night and spend it with the hosts you visit. And this year, our members are going to spend between 40 to $50 million directly with these hosts. And, um, and we don't take any of that. So, so we, you know, we take, we don't charge the hosts anything to be a part of the program. We don't take any commission. Um, it's just great for these businesses that we work with. That's fascinating. Yeah. I would have guessed that you're rev sharing but that totally makes sense and it's probably a lot more elegant and you're more of a lead gen for these uh for these small businesses right kind of yeah yeah and it's and it's just simpler in business i've always i love simple um like line of least resistance and so our pitch to the winery is look you're not going to charge our members anything to stay there but we're not going to charge you anything to be in this program and we're going to bring you an extra like 13 to fifty thousand dollars in business this year for free so you scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. Um, and it's been a good relationship. Are there issues? I mean, I'm sure with that many members are probably some issues sometimes, but, you know, members leaving trash or I don't know, just generally like not uh, being good guests. <laughs> yeah, good, yeah, good, good citizens. So no, we, we, so we've been very fortunate. We, we have a code of conduct, which we drive home very aggressively with our members. You know, they have to agree to it before they sign up. We remind them every single month. Um, 
And it's very simple. You know, it, it's kind of the camper's code. Uh, take only pictures, leave only footprints. Um, you just be, I always say, pretend you're, you're visiting your grandmother, right? Like, how would you treat her property, right? Um, fortunately, our veers in mass are just a really wonderful group of people, especially those who join a program like Harvest Hosts. These are adventurers, these are explorers, and they just tend to be kind of good corporate citizens, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you watch Nomad, Nomad, Nomad Land? You know, I did. I'm in, I don't know if I'm embarrassed. Or not. I couldn't, I couldn't get through it. Uh, mm. I, I watched half of it. It was, um, it was, it was, too, it was both too slow and also um, just kind of tough. Yeah. I think I need to give it another shot. I know it was an amazing film. Maybe I wasn't in the right headspace <laughs> for it, but uh, yeah, it, it did not, it didn't do it for me. It's a different side of the, the the nomad culture than what you're, you know, working on. It, it was interesting though, but uh, yeah, and, um, you know, maybe and maybe that's it. Maybe that was my problem, or or my issue with it is that is not the world of RVing that um, I understand or or um, build or support or anything, right? Like it was it was the sadder part, which is yeah. which is it's just true. Like there there are there are some people who are living out of um, vans out of necessity. Yeah. And that's a, it's like the, you know, it's tough. It's like the downtrodden, like, this is a tough situation. Um, I mean, our average member has a $300,000 unit and makes six figures a year. So it's just a very different world. Um, and it's funny how it's like the same, same, you know, type of unit, but just very different. And I suppose the analogy would be tent camps in Los Angeles in tent city for the homeless versus people out in the Rocky Mountain National Park in a tent. Yeah, right. Same, same vessel, very different life experience. Um, and it's, and it's sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's this whole van life thing is kind of amazing to me. I'm going to um, claim that I was uh, way early on the wave in, in high school, my girlfriend, and I bought a Volkswagen camper, camper bus, the old school camper bus and drove it Colorado to California up to Canada all the way to Quebec and New York and back like did the full U.S. loop in this 1969 camper bus broke down like every 50 miles but uh, <laughs> um, Dude, that's that, that's a cool experience right it's a cool experience it was fun it was it was amazing and now this whole van life thing is like kind of makes me want to do it again because you know maybe get a sprinter van what's your what's your RV of choice do you have a a big yeah. RV or Airstream or, or Sprinter. So we have a fifth wheel. And so okay. it's it's very large. Um, I pull it behind my truck. We, it's large because we go to a lot of RV events and we post up and like throw the party. Um, we did want, we did, we have a, a young daughter now and we wanted to get a Sprinter van as an easier way to travel around. Uh, they're impossible to find right now. Are they? You know, just yeah, given the interest, um, they're sold out at a manufacturer's level most of the vans are sold out for a year. And so tracking down is really tough. Um, so, so, so we're sticking with the fifth wheel. We might get a truck camper, you know, just as a way to get back into the woods mm. and do some more traditional, I call it hard shell tent camping. Um, typically we go back with a tent, but with a daughter, I think she needs a little more controlled environment. So throw a little truck camper on top of the truck and see how it goes. Yeah. That sounds cool. Awesome. All right. I could, keep asking a million questions about that, but let's talk about fundraising for this. So when you, 
uh, had this idea? How'd you get it going? You know, was this something you bootstrapped or what? Yeah, it's interesting. So Storyblocks was a bootstrap business, ground up, um, kind of, you know, literally from uh, from ideation to sale. The the, the traditional story, uh, bootstrapping and then fundraising. We ended up raising like eighteen million uh, and then selling it to a private equity firm. Harvest Host was different. Um, I bought the company, oh. and so I was actually in a place where I wanted to do something else. I wanted to to run another business. I love running businesses. I tried for like a year to figure out what I wanted to build. And it, I was, it was like trying to force love, right? Like trying to force the relationship. It didn't work. And, and I finally stepped back and said, take a breath. Um, maybe buying a business is not a bad idea. And like apply the skills that, you know, that I'm good at. So I, I, I literally drew this like Venn diagram of interests and then skill sets. Mm, and mm-hmm. in, the, in the middle, there had to be an overlap with my previous life in stock media. Didn't want to do that industry again. Um, RVing, I was really interested in. So RVing was the interest in the middle was online marketing, subscriptions, renewal, you know, retention, multivariate testing, all these things. And, and so I said, oh, it's interesting. I wonder if I can find a business that uses those skills that I could purchase and grow. And that's what Harvest Host was. It, it was, I bought it three years ago from a husband wife team. Um, it was a very small concept at the time. But had really good bones, and mm. and the the underlying concept was phenomenal. What was missing was the scale factor, and and I and I thought, hey, I can I can bring that to the table. How many locations did they have uh, when you bought it? If you can say, yeah, yeah, they so they were at about six thousand members and six hundred locations, mm. and so now we're at one hundred and eighty thousand members and um, twenty two hundred locations. Mm. Mm-hmm. How many members now? Uh, 180,000. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's great. You know, this is a slightly tangential topic, but I think it's interesting. How did you, uh, you don't have to give exact numbers or anything like that, but how did you sort of uh, acquire a a business like this? How did you set a price? How did you uh, reach out to them and, you know, negotiate it without, you know, getting them, keeping the price reasonable and stuff like that. Any anecdotes on that? How to purchase yeah, a business? Yeah, totally. Um, I think the way that a lot of people go about purchasing business is wrong. And that is to use traditional methods to just go through business brokers, go on bizbuysell.com. Like to me, that's too efficient. It's mm. kind of like the same way I buy media or advertising. If you just go to Google AdWords, you're paying a perfectly efficient price <laughs> and you're competing against everybody else buying that keyword. Mm-hmm. If you can find mispriced media, Mm. Um, you can get a discount and a really good deal with higher upside. So to me, business marketplaces are the efficient media that everyone, it's, it's too easy. Everyone can go in there and look at it, bid, buy. So you're paying a premium. My approach is get to know a vertical really well and something that you personally enjoy would be my choice. So for me, it was RVing. I knew RVing really well. I knew all the businesses in the space really well. Harvest Host was a business that never would have shown up on a business brokerage. It mm. wasn't for sale. You wouldn't have found it if you were just like, you know, someone looking to buy a business. But I knew it because I was in this world. I reached out to the owners cold and I just said, hey, I love your business. I'm a member. Would you have any interest in selling for the right price? And mm-hmm. that was the way to phrase it. And, and that and that's my advice for anyone listening. If you want to probe or buy a business, that's what you say. Would you sell this business for the right price? That that little qualifier there always gets a response. 
Because even if the group had no interest in selling, which by the way, the owners of Harvest Host had no interest in selling, but they had to find out what the right price was, right? <laughs> because what if the right price was like $10 trillion? Like yeah. you never know. So it got the conversation started and that's all, that's all we needed. Uh, it took a few months of getting to know each other and convincing them that um, I'd be a good buyer uh, and that you know, we could find the right price. But, but we got there. Okay. And again, you don't have to share numbers, but what did you coming up with the price? Cause they yeah, wanted yeah, yeah. to know a price. Do you totally. do a multiple so, of revenue or anything or what? This is how I did it. Uh, I did a multiple, uh, I did an EBITDA multiple. Okay. And, and so that, you know, when we started talking, I said, Hey, you know, I don't know anything about your business. I don't know your revenue or your profitability, but my goal is to try to buy a business like this for, you know, X multiple of EBITDA. And I gave a range mm -hmm. and, um, that kind of got the conversation started and we ended up closing for a multiple that was towards the higher end of that range. Yeah. Um, so when you, you know, when you give a range, be careful because, because you're, you're setting a, um, you know, you're, you're, you're putting a stick in the ground and they're always going to now trend their minds, get trend towards the higher end of the range. So sure. be careful when you set that expectation. But, um, but if that, but if it can work, then um, that's the way I like to do it. I think multiples are great. Yeah. Okay. Then the last question, then we'll move to fundraising. Then do you also incentivize them like, hey, well, you can retain X percent of ownership just so you have a, a stake in the, the eventual successful outcome? Do you like incentivize anything like that? And I think this is kind of like, this is founder or buyer specific. I personally don't like that approach. I like things, like I mentioned earlier, very clean. Mm. Um, so I wanted all the equity. Yeah, because it, I, I didn't want any partner whatsoever because I knew I was going to be making some decisions yep. that um, might make them uncomfortable, uh, but to me would not be uncomfortable because I was in a very financially sound situation, so I could take risk, and I yeah. didn't want I didn't want to have to think about hurting them as an equity partner. Whereas if I own all of it, I can make whatever decision I wanted and sleep really well at night. So, um, we I didn't let them roll any equity. Uh, but I did keep them on as consultants as part of the purchase. It was, mm. you know, I kept them on for six months mm. um, just to, to ensure a, a good seamless transition. Um, and, you know, and, and it went really well. So I, when you buy a business, I would for sure say, find a way to um, have a little bit of earn out. And I, it wasn't contingent on anything. It was just simply a piece of this purchase price. I'm going to pay you in monthly installments for the next six months, mm. just to keep you, keep your skin in the game until we're transitioned. Yeah, that's cool. Great. Okay. So I guess let's segue into fundraising. So then did you have to go raise capital? We'll talk about your fundraising journey. Did you raise capital, buy them out, or did you just buy them and then go raise capital? That second one. So uh -huh. I, I was fortunate um, because of the story blocks, you know, sale, I had capital and I decided um, why raise capital to purchase this business when I can self-fund it. And I had the confidence uh, this is, I had the confidence to know that, uh, worst case, I didn't think I would screw it up. And so based on, you know, based on the multiple, at which I purchased them, the return on capital was actually really good. It was better than any investment I was going to get in the stock market, mm. um, or anything else aside from crypto, <laughs> but, yeah, right. but any normal sane investment, my, 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 um, ROI was actually going to be very, very good. And so I was like, okay, Am I confident that I won't screw this business up? And the answer was yes. Do I think there's upside where I could actually grow it faster and turn this into something even bigger? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I was very confident of that. But, but at a baseline, I was like, I won't screw this up. And the return is good enough that why wouldn't I use my own money? 
Like, why would I take, you know, friends, you know, money from, from friends, family, or even debt when I can just be the debt provider and get the best return. So, so I bought it with my own money, mm-hmm. you know, a couple years in, uh, almost three years, cause it's only a couple months ago, we did do this $37 million fundraise. It was unintentional. Um, I didn't set out to raise funding. I never thought that we would raise funding. It just turned, you know, it, it turned out um, RVing became so popular. We started getting a lot of inbound interest from private equity firms mm. and, and, and just, it was constant. And so my other advice to people, to founders is like, always take the call. So, so even though I had zero interest in fundraising, I still took all the calls and I mm. spoke to all the firms, some of which I'd worked with in the past. And, and I told them all the same thing, like not really, you know, not really looking to, to raise, um, we're cash flow positive. We don't need the money. Uh, I don't see the point in bringing in a partner at this point. But as I got to talking, you know, the, the valuations were, um, very positive I and mean, we're in a very like, you know, interesting environment right now. So, so it was kind of that back that like at the right price thing. Yeah. At the right price. <laughs> yeah. At, so they were, they were talking really good prices. Um, and then the value add of having a partner who could, um, bring something else to the table was big. And that's ultimately why I did it. It wasn't the money. It was when I, I went with stripes stripes has already in the first few months been really helpful in helping us scale the business through things like finding talent. Mm. And so we brought on an amazing world-class CFO who I probably could not have recruited if we weren't a venture backed company brought on an amazing chief of staff who they actually helped me find. Um, they have an internal recruiting team actually. And so, so when we have job descriptions, their team helps us look for, for people, they vet them and screen them and then send them our way. So these are things that actually add value to my life and our business um, beyond just the capital. Yeah, cool. Okay, so let's go back to sort of how it all unfolded. Um, you're getting this inbound interest from private equity firms, you're taking a few calls. When you finally, you know, the switch happened in your brain, like, all right, maybe it's, I'll, I'll raise some money for this. Did you then you know, go out and collect a bunch of firms and have a, a, a little process or a little bake-off or, you know, or did you just sort of have a nice fuzzy relationship with Stripes and, and went down that path? Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. So I, we didn't run any sort of formal process in that um, we didn't reach out to parties we hadn't already spoken to. However, over the past few months, I had been speaking to a bunch of firms who would come at, you know, come to us. Yeah. And so once we had you know, a, a legitimate offer from one of these firms, um, I followed up with the others and just said, hey, I know I told you we weren't really thinking about funding. We got an, an unsolicited inbound offer um, that we're considering. If you'd like to, you know, participate, let us know. Yeah. And so it was kind of, you know, a soft sell push. Um, and we ended up getting about five, five bids. Um, and again, it was just because I already knew these groups and we had warm relationships. So I didn't have to take them through the whole business. Mm. You know, we didn't have to do the whole get to know you blind date thing. Mm-hmm, I knew mm-hmm. them uh, because we'd already taken the phone calls. So always take the phone calls. Always take the phone calls. Good. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Were these all private equity firms or some venture? I mean, 37 is a, a larger number for venture firms, but yeah. Or, or what? Yeah, they, they were all private equity Um and a lot of the ones you'd think of, and a lot of them technology. So I was, it was, it was interesting. It was firms that <laughs> a few years ago, if you had said this firm is going to 
be interested in the RV space, I would have said, get out of town. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but uh, times are changing. And, and so, um, it, yeah, they were, they, were, they were larger groups. Some of them with a more strategic, like some of them had other portfolio companies that were strategic. So it was a no-brainer. Some were simply interested in building something great, you know, in, in this uh, space, which they see as a large addressable market. Mm, interesting. Talk about raising from PE firms. On this show, we've had mostly folks raising money from angels and, and VCs. Are there any, you know, unique elements to that? Are they mostly digging into your numbers or, or you know, or what? What's, what's it like? What can you share on that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. In my experience, I've now raised um, twice. Well, I mean, maybe a, a few, it's always been private equity. So mm-hmm. my, my, the only thing I understand is private equity. And so it, from what I've seen, they're looking for an established business um, with a lot of runway. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way they end up getting valued is typically some combination of a revenue multiple and an EBITDA multiple. Mm-hmm. And they always, you know, you, one or the other, they always go backwards, right? So maybe it's, you know, 10 times EBITDA, five times revenue. Um, a lot of times those things are very similar. So um, before I do a raise, I make sure the business is in a place where I'm okay with the, that outcome, right? So so it's, I've always built very profitable companies. And mm-hmm. so I'm fine with them being uh, valued based on cash flow because they are usually cash flowing very well um, and growing very quickly. But there is a bit of a timing game with raising from private equity. You want to make sure you're raising while you're growing, because yeah. if you start to flatline, the interest in your business is gone, mm. right? Like, cause they're trying to, you know, a private equity firm wants to buy into your business um, and sell for at least a five X multiple, right? Like mm-hmm. that's how they return. Hopefully they get some even bigger wins, 10 X, et cetera. But, but I think, you know, most PE firms would tell you five X is kind of what they're looking at. Mm-hmm. And um, the only way they're going to get that is if you have substantial growth over the next, you know, five to seven years. Interesting. Yeah. Are they typically taking a board seat? Are they, uh, you talk about the value out of stripes with the recruiting. Yep. I tend to think, and I don't have as much experience with PE firms. I tend to think of them as sort of less hands-on than venture firms, but I could be totally wrong. I don't know. Any no, other- I think, I think, in, I think as a general statement, that's right. Um, the, the firms and everyone's different, right? And this is uh, some of the advice I was given when I raised in my twenties for, for Storyblocks was, um, a financial partner is like a spouse that you cannot divorce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the advice between the lines was pick very carefully because um, you're with this person, this group for, for you know, <laughs> until death do us part. Yeah. Hopefully a transaction and, and not a liquidation. Um, and, and, and so it's not just the firm you choose, the partner you choose, like the partner at the firm. That's really what matters because that's who you're going to be spending a lot of time interfacing with. And every partner is different. Some really like to be in it. A lot of value adds. Some are a little more like, you know, laissez-faire. Typically, um, as you get to know each other, you, you develop an understanding. And so, um, you know, with Stripes, our partner's Chris Carey. He's wonderful. Um, he's pretty much as involved as we want him to be. And so here in the first, like, you know, 90 days, I've leaned on him a bunch um, for recruiting, for helping with employment contracts, uh, figuring out, you know, legal stuff. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of things that he's been able to help with, you know, probably as we get into a steady state, there'll be less of that. 
Um, but we've built a really great board. And, and to your point, yes, he's on the board. Uh, typically they take a board seat uh, or, or more, depends on what kind of transaction you did. Um, and, and they'll usually let you kind of fly as long as everything's going well. Mm-hmm. Now when there's a little turbulence, <laughs> there might be a little more leaning in. Um, but, but that's why it's very important to choo- choose that um, firm and the partner really carefully. Yeah, no, that's good. Was Stripes the sole uh, party that uh, came in on the thirty-seven million, or was it a, a multiple parties? Sole. We we mm. had a, a number of firms that wanted to kind of come in. Again, I like simple, mm. and didn't I wanted as few seats at the table as possible, in, unless there was really a good reason to have um, another group. You know, that would add strategic value. Um, instead, we built a great board, and we brought on board members who add a ton of value um, that they just much less expensively than having to give up a bunch of equity. Maybe touch on that just for a second. So you've got, obviously you're on the board, I'm sure the, uh, the Stripes uh, partners on, on the board. What other uh, board members did you try and attract or, or recruit for your board? Yeah, so, so far um, we brought on uh, Dick Rains, who's the CEO of Carfax. Mm. And um, he he's just wonderful guy, ton of experience. I mean, he's he's taken that company, you know, to something quite large, of course, but also for through thick and thin, like good times, bad times, economies up and economies down. He's seen a lot, mm-hmm. um, and so that was a he was actually a board member that Stripes helped us find and recruit. Mm. And um, you know, the value he he adds is is, is tremendous. Um, and you know, and, and he he is compensated. You know, board members are compensated. But again, the compensation compared to bringing in another firm that would take a big chunk of equity, if you think your equity is really quite valuable, then that that's an expensive proposition. Yeah, yeah, good, uh, excellent. What else do I want to ask you? Um, I'm sure uh, pandemic was good for business, <laughs> kind of yeah. a, right? It sounds like yeah, yeah. We we were very fortunate. I mean, pandemic was. Com- I mean, we were blindsided in March of last year, just like everyone else. Everything like dried up, membership dropped 80%. Mm. The sky fell. But we were also pretty optimistic that um, RVing was going to rage back because people have to travel. Like people, a lot of people need it to stay sane. Road travel is going to be the safe option, not air travel, not hotels. And that's exactly what happened, right? So so, um, we kind of leaned into it. We, We lit up some large advertising campaigns um, really highlighting how you know safe, scenic, and supportive of small business RVing is, um, and it, and it worked out really well. Mm. Um, it could have gone both ways. I mean, it was a black swan event. So so clearly, we were fortunate that we benefited from it. Um, I'd say we certainly took the baton and ran with it, right? Like we we staffed up quickly, we raised this funding, and we hit the ground running. So we took the wins and we put a parachute on, right? Like. Um, we, we, we tried to fly with that wind. Yeah, I love it. All right. Well, you've got locations to scout. Where will you go this summer? Do you have any, any particular uh, plans or routes? Your- Man, you know, the, the big trip that keeps getting away from us is Alaska. Mm. Um, I don't think we'll be able to do it this year, more because we now have a, a, an infant daughter mm. and that's just a lot of traveling. Um, but we are doing, we went to, we took her on her first RV trip to Moab. Cool. Um, last weekend is super cool. Uh, we'll do more 
um, we'll do more of that. We typically drive across the country once a year. You know, we have a lot of family still in Virginia. So we'll probably head across at some point, go to Virginia, mm -hmm. visit. Um, but uh, that's what I like about RVing. It's a very spontaneous activity. So I, most of, we have no plans at this moment other than we're going to Wyoming in July um, for an event. But honestly, like this weekend might pop up and we go, you know what, let's just, let's go to Arches National Park, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that, that's oh. the beauty of it. It's very spontaneous. Love it, love it, love it. All right, Joel, thank you. This is great. Um, if people want to learn more, it's simply harvesthosts.com, correct? You got it. Good. Um, I want to check this out. I've really, I've, I've been trying to talk my wife into letting me get a sprinter. I guess I can't even get one if I wanted to, but like I've been sort of like, you know, nudging that uh, in her direction and planting the seed of an idea in her brain. I don't know. It may take a while, but yeah. Anyway. You should do it. I mean, you can always start by renting, right? Like if you go to outdoorsy.com or rvshare.com, you can find exactly the type of unit you're interested in, try it out and, um, and then maybe buy. You know, the nice thing today with renting is it's kind of like Airbnb where you can go stay in a, a nice house. You can stay in someone's really nice sprinter van. It's not one of these like crappy rental cars anymore. Yeah. So, so you can get the full experience before you buy. That's a good, that's a great sales pitch to her. We have a great weekend at a winery. Yeah, I was just going to say, and then make sure you take her to a winery because the key is going to be showing her an amazing time. Yes. Perfect. All right. On that note, I've got my work cut out for me. You've got your work cut out for you. Appreciate the time and uh, check out harvesthosts.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it.